Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. Hey, hey, welcome everybody. So good to see you today. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, we are wrapping up a series entitled Fearful People, Faithful God. We've been looking at people all throughout the Bible who have encountered a faithful God in the most fearful of situations. And the person that we're gonna look at today in Genesis 28 is Jacob. A little instance from the life of Jacob. Jacob hails from the time of the patriarchs. You often hear him mentioned in the same breath with Abraham and Isaac. But you know what's interesting about Jacob? Jacob is spoken of by the prophet Hosea in Hosea 12. Hosea says of Jacob that he met God at Bethel. Now that phrase, he met God at Bethel, is really interesting. You know why? Because Jacob, I've mentioned Abraham. Abraham was Jacob's grandfather. His father was Isaac. Would you say Jacob comes from some good stock? Would you say Jacob comes from a strong faith tradition? Yeah. So why then does it not come until he has grown up, left home, and gone far away to this desolate place we're going to learn about called Bethel. Why does it take him that long to meet God? That's a good question as we begin our study today. I want you to stand with me as we pray briefly, and we're going to jump right in here, okay? Let's bow. Heavenly Father, as we open our word today, your word, Lord, it's our fervent desire that we meet with you. We want to meet with you as Jacob met with you in this place called Bethel. And that's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated. We're gonna pick it up in verse 10. Verse 10 of Genesis 28, and it says right here that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now you can't really tell by the two verses we just read, but Jacob, our hero, is in a world of hurt. You been in a world of hurt before, anybody? You been in a place of discouragement before, place of fear, place of regret? That's where Jacob is, right here. All right? What do you need to know when you come into a place like that, when you are in a world of hurt? You need to know something right off the bat in your notes, and it's this. Our place of trial can become our place of reflection. Reflection. Now, the text does not say that Jacob is reflecting, but I guarantee you, I am confident that this boy is reflecting about something right here. How do you know that, Pastor Scott? Because I know the backstory. He is on the road to Haran. He is a desperate man. He is a man on the run. He is on the lamb. Okay, he's in fear of his life. I'm going to explain. The backstory is that our hero Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah, if you know their story, for years and years and years, they tried to have children. Finally, God smiles on them, gives them two twin boys. We meet these babies in Genesis 25. And when she gives birth, the first child comes out. His description is there. It's, he's ruddy in complexion. 
He's got a reddish tint to his body, and he is covered from head to toe with hair. That sounds like a cute kid, doesn't it? And they name him Esau. Now, Esau means Harry in Hebrew. Did you know that? All their names had a meaning back then, so that was Harry when, they, when he came out right there. And literally on the heels of Esau is his brother, baby number two. And I say on his heels because there's a chubby little baby hand that is grasping the heel of his hairier older brother as he comes out of the womb. And mom and dad chuckle at this, and they name that baby Yaakov or Jacob, which in Hebrew means heel grabber. That's what it means, all right? And that kind of has a double connotation because heel grabber would be a term that you would apply to somebody who is deceptive, who seeks to trip you up, all right, to deceive you. And that's going to be a very appropriate name for Jacob, as you will see here. But that's, those are the two boys at the beginning of this story. You got fuzzy and sneaky, okay? Right there. And as they grow up in this household, they're going to grow up in a rather dysfunctional place because mom and dad are going to fall into a pitfall that a lot of parents slip into. And it's not good. It's not healthy. It's called favoritism. Dad's got his favorite. Mom's got her favorite. Dad favors the hairy kid. He likes Esau. Now, why does Isaac favor Esau? Because as Esau grows, he becomes a man of the field. He becomes an outdoorsman, a hunter. He's a real man's man. Maybe the hair has something to do with that. I don't know. But Isaac loves him because when Esau is fully grown, Isaac is old and blind. And he can no longer go out and hunt. And so Esau hunts, kills, and prepares a meal and brings dad Nice, juicy red meat. That's what we men love. We just love people who bring us meat. That's why he favors Esau. Mom favors the smooth kid. And he's smooth in that he has not the hair that his brother has, but he's also smooth in a different way. He's smooth. He's charming. He's got the dimples, the flashy smile. He is a beguiling sort, and she's just falling in love with this kid. And the scripture describes Jacob. He is a tent dweller. He is a man of the indoors. He's not like Esau. He doesn't go hunting. He's domesticated. He's at home with mom. He knows his way around the kitchen. He's very culinarily gifted, and that's why she loves him. Now, adding to this dysfunction is a concept called the birthright. What's a birthright? Well, in that culture, the father, as he nears the end of his life, calls to himself the eldest male child, and he blesses that oldest son, and he bestows upon him uh, a double portion of his inheritance. He gets more than the other kids get, and he blesses him and bequeaths upon him the authority of the entire house, so all the siblings are now subservient to him, and that goes to the oldest Son, now how tense is that in a family with two twin boys? That's, that's tense right there. And so even though he's just a handful of seconds older, Esau is slated to get the birthright. And, and add to that, he's dad's favorite, and it's kind of a messy deal. Mom knows best, she thinks. She thinks, well, he's not qualified for this. My favorite, Jacob, he's the more qualified one. Why? He's more intelligent. He's more handsome. He's more gifted. He's more, he's more spiritually sensitive. And she just attributes all these things to him that I'm sure he's not. But in her eyes, he just shines, okay? Well, the day finally comes. Isaac calls Esau in. He says, my son, my time is at hand. Go out, kill something, prepare a meal for your old dad so that I may bless you. He says, you got it, dad. He goes out. Rebecca, the mother, says, now's our shot. This is our chance, our opportunity. She says to Jacob, we're going to deceive your father. 
okay? He doesn't know what's best. I know what's best. Go kill a goat from the flock. Bring it to me. I'm going to prepare a meal. And then you are going to deceive your dad into thinking that you are Esau. We're going to take the hair of that goat and we're going to glue it to your hands and your neck so that your poor blind father will feel you and think you are your hairier older brother. Now stop right there. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how hairy is this guy? Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to believe that we're going to put goat hair on this kid and his dad's going to think he's his brother? Let me tell you something. A few years ago, I went on a cruise with my wife and another couple. And on this carnival cruise, they had a hairy chest contest. Now, I want to make it very clear. I did not enter this contest, okay? But I saw the dude who won. He took off his shirt, and I thought, well, he's got to take off his other shirt. Dude looked like he was wearing an alpaca sweater. Hairiest guy I've ever seen. He won, and he was enjoying himself. He was owning it. He was, like, working it. It was like, at long last, this is going to pay off, you know? And I was happy for him. I was like, good for you, Fuzzy. Happy for you. You enjoy that plastic boat trophy that they gave you, you know? But the whole thing just showed me this is plausible right here. This is plausible. So he goes in. His blind father feels him. He feels like Esau. Jacob's got on one of his brother's garments from his closet. He smells like Esau. It's a successful deception. Long story short, Isaac blesses Jacob, gives him the birthright, bequeaths the authority upon him. Jacob leaves. Enter Esau with meal number two. Uh Uh-oh. All is now discovered what has happened. There's been a duping taking place. And you got two crestfallen men. Esau is in tears. He is crying out. Isaac is perplexed and stunned. And it's just a mess. Now, in the mind of Rebecca, Jacob, they, I'm sure, thought, well, it's going to be a little awkward at first, but everybody will make their peace with it. And there's going to be a smooth transition. And Jacob will just assume authority. Mm Mm-mm. Doesn't happen that way. You've got an older brother who's incensed. He's livid. He's filled with rage. How dare he steal my birthright? And he threatens to kill Jacob. Mom goes into plan B. She regroups. She says, okay, Jacob, you got to leave. Son, you got to leave town. You got to get out of here. Your brother's going to kill you. And then your friends are going to want revenge and they're going to kill him. And then I'm out too, boys. I can't have that. So you got to go north. You got to go to Haran where I grew up. And my brother Laban is up there. You could stay with him for a while until this all blows over. And then you can come back and everything will be normal again. That's where we're picking it up here. That's where we find Jacob. He is on the run. He has fled for his life. He's left Beersheba. He's heading 400 miles north to Haran in Mesopotamia. And he has taken the Judean Arch. That's kind of the ancient Canaanite interstate right there, okay? But it's in the wilderness. You can't go over the mountains. Too treacherous. You can't go down by the coast in the flatlands. There's Philistines down there. So you got to take the the Judean Arch through the, the wilderness there. Now, this is not the kind of kid who goes backpacking in the wilderness, This ain't Esau, okay? Jacob, he's the kind of guy that stays home with mom watching MasterChef. This is not his bag, all right? And he's left his home so quickly in fear that he's forgotten to pack something soft to put under his head. 
And so what we see happening, he takes one of the stones of this place where he stops for the night. He's about 60 miles from home on foot. And he takes a stone and he lays his head down on this stone and tries to go to sleep. Have you ever done this before? I've never tried to sleep on a rock. But this stone sort of just symbolizes everything that's happened to him. It's cold, it's hard, it's uncomfortable. That's the position he finds himself in, a place of regret. A place where he's replaying everything, all of his bad decisions. Have you ever been in this place right here? Have you ever been where in your rear view, you've got defeat and failure and sin and regret and ahead of you you've got anxiety and and uncertainty and above you you've got the judgment of the stars and beneath your head is a cold hard uncomfortable stone what do you need to know when you find yourself in a place like that I think you need to ask a couple of questions you need to ask first of all in your notes what do I need to own as I replay my mistakes I've made a huge mistake, we might think. What do I need to own? Does he have anything, Jacob have anything he needs to take responsibility for? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's lied. He's deceived. He's destroyed his relationship with his father, his brother. He's connived and colluded with his mother. She's also responsible right there. Now, you may say, well, I know this story, and I happen to know that Jacob was God's choice sovereignly, so are you sure that they did wrong? Hey, yes, God's sovereign, but does he need us to sin to bring about his will? No, they're responsible for their actions. Now, you may find yourself in a situation that's not of your own making. You just may be experiencing a hard time. It just happened to you. You're not, but this is still a good question to ask. To say, Lord, what should I own? What is my part? Why? Because in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Good to know that, isn't it? That's why we need to ask this question. Second question in your notes, what do I need to learn? What do I need to learn in this situation? Now, you may not know the answer to this question for a while. Might take a while. Rebecca sends him up to stay with her brother for a while. How long is a while in her mind? She's thinking a few weeks, a few months maybe, just, just until the dust settles and then you can come home and we'll, we can be a family again. You know how long a while ended up being for Jacob? 20 years. He will never see his mother again. She will never lay eyes on her favorite son. She's gonna die in the two decades after he leaves home. Can deception and manipulation reap some bitter fruit? It sure can. And so that's where we are right here. Jacob is, is filled with this. He's, he's replaying things. He's reflecting and he feels lost and he feels alone. And look what God does for Jacob. He gives him a dream. Now, can God see Jacob where he is? Can God see you in your difficult time? Or is he too big? Is he so big he can't see you? He can't see the details of your life? We're gonna find out right here. God gives him a dream. Now in your notes, our place of trial can become our place of encounter. Encounter. Look at verse 12, it says, and he dreamed, and behold there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. 
And behold, the angels of God ascended and descended on it. All right? They were ascending and descending on this, what it says is a ladder. Now, here's what we need to realize in our difficult situation, just like Jacob realizes we are not alone. He feels all alone. God's trying to show him, no, you're not. No, you're not. And he shows him what? A ladder, it says. Now, the, the Hebrew word there is not uh, really ladder. It's shulam in the Hebrew. That word never appears in your Bible anywhere else, just right here. You know what that means? That means it's open for interpretation. Now, the, the translators there say ladder. I don't think that's the best word because what's happening? You've got angels, plural, I'm picturing the myriads of angels of heaven. They are coming and going. They are ascending and descending. I'm not seeing angels taking turns just one at a time, going up this little skinny ladder, rung by rung, all right? This is, I'm picturing, you know, the great theologians, Led Zeppelin, have a song. Stairway to heaven, right? Nah, they're not great theologians, but stairway may be a better word right here. I'm picturing a wide, vast, palatial thoroughfare going from the earth to the majesty and glory of heaven. Just a, a, a boulevard of activity on which these messengers, these malak in the Hebrew, these angels of God are just ascending and descending. And these are the beings that Hebrews 1.14 says are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Anybody going to inherit salvation in this room today? Yes, sir, I hope so. Now, when you get to heaven one day, you're going to meet some personalities there, very cosmic in nature, and they will know your name. They will know you. Why? Because they've spent your entire life tending to your needs, obeying God, doing what they were made to do to minister to you who will inherit salvation. And God is trying to tell Jacob right here, hey, boy, you think you're all alone, I have parked you next to the super highway to heaven. And I want you to see in a very visible way, you are not alone, you have never been alone, and you will never be alone. Angels are tending to your every step. We need to know that. And Jacob's on the cusp of a breakthrough in his perspective of God. See, he's grown up in the house of Isaac. He knows about Grandpa Abraham. He's always heard the stories of God. He knows God is great. He's about to see that God is also intimate and he comes down to Jacob's level in his time of trouble. Just because you're in trouble doesn't mean you're on your own. George MacDonald, great Christian author, he said the troubles are the shadow of God's wings. Meaning when your life is at its darkest, when your life is at its lowest, that's when God is at his closest. I think of Elisha, in 2 Kings 6, Elisha and his servant, they're surrounded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are descending on them. His servant freaks out. He goes, oh my gosh, we're dead. We're dead men. Prophet, do something. And Elisha prays to God. What does he pray? Does he pray, God, save us? No. He prays, God, open the eyes of my servant that he may see that those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And God opens his eyes and he sees the mountains are on fire with the chariots of the heavenly host. They're not alone. The presence of God is with them. I think of Joshua the night before Jericho falls. He's walking through his camp 
in the dark, he comes upon a man with sword drawn. And it startles Joshua, and he says, you there, are you for us or against us? The man says, no, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. Meaning, I'm not for you or against you, I'm in charge. Joshua takes off his shoes, he, he falls down before him, and he worships. Why? Because this is no man, this is no angel, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. And he's gonna go before Joshua and win the day, and those walls are gonna fall. I don't care if you're Joshua, Elisha, or Jacob, or little old you, you are not alone. You are in the presence of God. Whatever you're going through, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that today? You need to believe that. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it, this Shulam, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the, uh, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. You see what God is doing here? He's saying, hey, Jacob, Hi, remember me? I'm the God of your daddy and your granddaddy. But son, I want to be your God too. I don't want you to just think of me as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I want to be the God of Jacob. What's this mean? It means that in your notes, our faith must become personal. It has to be your faith. You cannot live vicariously through someone else's faith. Do we know that? For years, I've been up here for eight years in Modesto. And in that whole time, I've told people that I've never been to Lake Tahoe. And they, yeah, and they react like that. They, it's like this judgmental thing, like, oh. And I'm like, oh, calm down. I've seen pictures, all right. I know it's beautiful, whatever, you know. My wife and I went last week. Holy cats. That is a beautiful place. What a national treasure. Wow, I can't wait to go back. It was amazing. And we went somewhere else, south of Tahoe, up in the mountains. There's an alpine lake, higher elevation, Angora, I think. We went up there. We, heard, we got a clue, go up this dirt road. We saw vistas, just unbelievable. We get at the top, this crystal lake surrounded by mountains, snow caps, tall redwoods, crystal water, waterfall falling right in there. Took Deanna out on a rowboat. It was amazing. The whole trip up the mountain, there's millions of butterflies everywhere. Deanna's freaking out, trying to take pictures of them all, you know? We looked at her pictures later. That doesn't even come close. You had to be there. You have to experience it in person. You can't live through Facebook. You can't live through someone else's experience and you can't live through someone else's faith. Abraham's faith, not enough for Isaac. Isaac's faith, not enough for Jacob. Jacob's faith is not gonna be enough for Joseph. Your faith, not gonna be enough for your kids. Your spiritual mentors, your parents, your father, your mother, your pastor, your teacher, your friends, their faith ain't gonna cut it for you. You say, well, I come from a really godly family. Good for you. Don't care. I mean, I'm happy for you, get you on a trajectory, but ultimately, it's gotta be personal. It's gotta be your faith. That kid's gonna go off to college one day. Mom's quiet time, not gonna sustain him. He's gonna get a drunk roommate and an atheist professor. He's gonna go to parties and, and have a bevy of peer pressure to dishonor his family, his God. He's gonna go through heartache. He's gonna come to the end of himself. He's gonna come to Bethel. And God is gonna meet with him and it's gonna get real. God wants you to have a personal faith. Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? I don't care what the Jews say I am, what the Gentiles say I am, Peter, who do you say I am? 
And God just reiterates this covenant that he made with Abraham. But he says it to Jacob. I'm going to extend the covenant I made with Abraham and with your father. I'm going to extend it to you. And he says, hey, hey, rich boy, you think you blew it and you've lost it all? Now you got nothing but a rock under your head? Guess what? That land that you're lying on now, I'm going to give it to you and to your offspring. And all the land, as far as your eyes can see, that's your land. I'm going to give it to you. And what we learn in your notes is that God personally guarantees his promises. And there's no better guarantee than a guarantee from the living God. He goes on to verse 14, just walking through the, the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, I wish we had a whole series to deal with the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, it, you got, it's, it's powerful. But, but this is part of it. He says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He's saying, hey kid, I know you think you dishonored your family, but listen, listen, I'm a faithful God and I keep my promise and I'm gonna multiply your family and through your family, all the other families of the earth will be blessed. And by the way, this is the best part of the Abrahamic covenant. You know why? Because the rest of it does not apply to you and I because we're not Jewish, I'm guessing, in here. I'm not a descendant of Abraham. And so I don't get in on the land promise. I don't get in on the, I'm gonna multiply you like the stars and the dust and all that. I don't get in on the, I'm gonna make you a great nation. But this part about the blessing to all the families of the earth, you know what that means? That means that through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one day there's gonna come a baby and he's gonna grow up to live a sinless life and he's gonna go to a cruel Roman cross and he's gonna pay the price for all mankind and we have access to that blessing and his name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? That's a blessing right there. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I'm gonna see you through. No matter what you've done, Jacob, no matter how you've blown it, I'm sovereign and I'm gonna use it. And we're gonna follow Jacob's story. If you read on, you see he takes him safely. God takes him to Haran. He prospers this boy he introduces him to the love of his life there, Rachel. And down the road, he's going to bless Jacob. And he's going to give him not one, not two, but 12 sons. And one of them will be named Joseph. And Joseph will famously say to his brothers who wish him ill, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Folks, that's sovereignty. We have a sovereign God who is faithful to Jacob. He is faithful to you. And what happens when we understand that, even in a dark place, when we come into our desolate uh, moment of frustration and discouragement and we tune into the heart of God and we sense his presence, what happens? Our faith becomes enlarged, like Jacob's is. Look what happens in verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. I had no idea in my time of trial that you were here, God, but you've been here all along and you wanted to meet with me. Years ago, I was the lead worship pastor at a large mega ministry in the Midwest and I, I led thousands of people in worship every week. It was a dream job for me and at this ministry, there was a young man, he was about my age at the time, not young man anymore, but he, he was a peer and he said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to go out and plant a church in San Diego. 
And the Lord began to pull at my heart, and Deanna and I prayed together. We decided we were going to jump on board with this guy and help him go plant a church. And I stepped down from this role at this mega church. And I put my brand new home on the market. And we picked up everything. We moved across the country. We came to San Diego. Now, when we got here, it became very apparent that this lead pastor, and I was his associate, became very apparent that we were not compatible in ministry. Because what I had been led to believe that we were going to plant a church in a very organic fashion through discipling people and building small group community and developing a church and going from group to core. And that's the plan as I understood it. But it became apparent once we were there that his plan was to solicit money from large mega ministries, bigger churches, get donors and throw a bunch of money at this thing and have a bunch of promotion and hold a bunch of events and we were gonna be this overnight sensation and we were going to, in a very short time, plant a mega church and we would be a sensation and articles would be written about us and books and every other church would wanna be just like us. Folks, that's two very different philosophies. And I remember we launched our church and on the first Sunday, we had 80 people show up. I was elated. I thought, praise God, a church that didn't exist a week ago. And now we have 80 people to work with, to build on. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. My partner in ministry was depressed. He was in the dumps. It was a failure as far as he was concerned. He told all his donors that they could expect that we'd have hundreds there on day one. We met for about 10 more weeks. We averaged between 40 and 50 a week. One day he took me to breakfast. He said, I can't do this anymore. I can't face my donors. I, don't, I can't go back to them and tell them we had 40 people here. I don't know what to do. It's embarrassing to me. And I've got to make a change and I don't know how to fix this, but I've just got to do something. I'm going to have to let you go. And he fired me. And I was devastated. I, I didn't understand. I went home. I told my wife and Deanna was heartbroken. And we cried, and I remember lying on my bed at night, and I just thought, I've made a huge mistake. What have I hitched my wagon to? What have I walked away from? I've got a mortgage that I owe on. I have no job to go to. I can't move back. There's nothing there for me but a house that I can't afford. What am I going to do? God, show me the way. I'm at the end of myself. A local pastor friend called me up. He said, hey, man, I heard what happened. I'm really sorry. Let's go to lunch. He took me to lunch. We prayed together. We bonded. And over time, he came back. He said, hey, I've been praying about something. He goes, we're not a big church. Don't have a lot of money. But I've got some guys that can help facilitate a salary for you. What do you say? You want to come aboard? And I prayed about it. And I said, let's do it. And I ministered with that guy for about four or five years. And do you know that was the sweetest time of ministry? And God used that time to bring healing to me, to my family. And we learned about the grace of God. And we ministered and we discipled people. And it was there at that little church that I first began to walk in a teaching role. Something that was never going to happen in that other situation. That was my Bethel. I came to the end of myself and God says, look what I have for you. Your place of trial becomes your place of encounter. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? And look at the change it has on Jacob. I want you to see in your notes, our place of trial can become our place of worship. Worship. In verse 17, it says he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this, this shalom, this ladder, this is the gateway 
to heaven. What's changed? Has the place changed overnight? No, what's changed? Jacob has changed. It says, do you see, he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, you say, Pastor Scott, isn't that the opposite of our word for the year? Isn't our word for the year fearless? Isn't afraid the opposite of fearlessness? No, not in this case. You see, this is a new kind of fear. Jacob's not afraid of a circumstance anymore. He's not afraid of a situation. He is attributing fear rightly to the one person who alone deserves to be feared. It is right and biblical and appropriate to fear the Lord. And in your notes, to live a fearless life is to fear God. He deserves to be feared. That puts everything in a proper perspective. When you fear God biblically, you need not be afraid of anything else. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In verse 18, it says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he put under his head, he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on it. You see what he's doing here? He's taking that stone. He's taking that object that represented all his mess ups, his mistakes, his hardship, his discomfort, and he is making it into what? An altar. He's making it into a place of worship. Are you willing to do that with your situation? In your notes, we can dedicate our difficult situation to his glory. That's what needs to happen. I bet in here there's a lot of you who've experienced spiritual transformation throughout your life. And I bet you that the altars that you have erected unto the Lord where you have found transformation, I bet they started out as stones under your head, cold, hard, uncomfortable stones. What stone is under your head right now? Are you willing to make it an altar? Are you willing to dedicate it to God? Are you willing to say, God, this thing I'm going through right now, it stinks, I hate it, it's hard, it's rough, it's difficult, but I want you to take it and use it. Even if things don't get better here, God, use it for your glory that's a hard thing to say, but listen, that is the only perspective that's gonna get you through this. Because it, it's in line with the will of God. And Jacob does this in verse 19. He calls the name of that place Bethel, house of God. But the name of the place was different. It was not Bethel. He named it Bethel. What was it called before? It was called Luz. What does Luz mean? Oh, okay, somebody said, yeah, that means light in Spanish. Bible was not written in Spanish. <laughs> However, I mean, it, it works, doesn't it? You know what lose means in Hebrew? Almond tree. I thought this place sounded familiar. This desolate place where the almond trees grow. Hey, <laughs> hey, can we find heartache in Motown? <laughs> can we meet with God in Motown? Yes, we can. That's right. Verse 20. He makes a vow unto the Lord. If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I will go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, then I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, Bethel. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This kind of has a, this vow has kind of an if-then component. Kind of sounds like a business deal, doesn't it? That's very common for vows in the Old Testament. It doesn't really bother me. What this is is a breakthrough for this boy. 
This was a very deceptive man a few hours ago, but he sensed the presence of God and he's realized what we need to realize. In your notes, he realizes that God's commitment to us should be honored by our commitment to him. God is dedicated and that deserves a commitment. He is going to be dedicated to Jacob. He's gonna bring him back. And along the way, along Jacob's story, God's gonna give Jacob a new name. Does anybody know the name that God will rename Jacob with? It's Israel, that's right. The name that that promised land will one day be known by. You know what Israel means in Hebrew? God prevails. God wins. This is an ironclad covenant that deserves a commitment. And you have an ironclad covenant with God. He died on your behalf. And when you put your faith in him, he will put his spirit in you and you will live eternally with him. And as Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me because he loved me. He gave himself for me. Now, as I wrap up here, the challenge in teaching an, an Old Testament text for a New Testament church pastor is not to just superimpose a bunch of Jesus stuff onto an Old Testament context. You with me? The tendency is to try to insert the gospel into every Old Testament story. Sometimes it's applicable, sometimes it's not. The question is, have I done that? Have I forced some Jesus application into the story of Jacob? I don't think so. Let me show you something as we wrap up. I think this will be encouraging and inspiring to you. Turn to John 1. I want you to look at something. Between John 1, 45 and 51... This ties in with Jacob's story right here. You see, Jesus meets his first disciples. There's Philip and there's Andrew. Philip and Andrew spend all day with Christ and they're convinced at the end of that time that he's the Messiah. Philip goes, he finds his friend, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's sitting under a fig tree. He says, Nathaniel, you gotta come with me. We found him, we found him. The one of whom the prophets and Moses spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, come and see Philip gets up from under that fig tree. He follows, excuse me, Nathaniel gets up. He follows Philip. They come back to Christ. And as they are approaching Jesus, Jesus looks, he sees Nathaniel, and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That stops Nathaniel dead in his tracks. He says, how do you know me? Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The next words out of Nathanael's mouth in verse 49, it says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. How is it that Nathanael is embracing him as Messiah so quickly, just a few scant seconds after coming into his presence? I think the key is where Nathanael has just come from. He was sitting under a fig tree. In that culture, the fig tree was a place of contemplation. The rabbis would say, when you sit under the fig tree, you pray for the coming of Messiah. If you have not done that, you have not prayed. And the Lord Jesus knows what is in the mind of Nathaniel as he contemplated under that fig tree. But I'm here to tell you that as he said those words, they struck Nathaniel. Because I think that Nathaniel was also contemplating Genesis 28, and I think Jesus knew this. Our story of Jacob, he says to him, behold an Israelite, what's the name God gave Jacob? Israel. 
He says, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. What kind of a man was Jacob before he met God at Bethel? He was a deceitful man, and God changed him. And then Nathanael responds and embraces him, and Jesus kind of chuckles. He says, because I said I saw you under a fig tree, you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than this. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 51. He says the following. Truly, truly, watch this now. I say to you, <laughs> you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is that a reference to right there? Folks, that is a reference to the vision God gave Jacob, where Jacob saw a shulam, the way to heaven, the gate of heaven, and behold, the angels were ascending and descending on it. Folks, there's one way. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel what he would later explicitly say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Words from the lips of the one who would be the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and yes, Jacob, through whom all the families of the earth would one day be blessed. Folks, when you as a believer enter into your Bethel, your difficult, dark situation, you go into that with more revelation, more knowledge than Jacob had. You go in knowing you're not alone. You don't need a vision. You don't need to see angels. You know by the revelation of his word, his promise, which is guaranteed, you are not alone. The presence of the Lord is with you. You may not know, as they say, what tomorrow holds, but you know who holds tomorrow, and you need not be afraid. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. I pray that as you know what they're going through in various circumstances, God, may they see those circumstances as their Bethel. God, a place where you want to meet with them. You want to draw them close to you. And I pray that they will be able to dedicate those places for your glory. Make an altar out of a hardship and say, God, have your way. Use this time in my life as you will because I know the way. And it's only through you. And your promise is sure. And you want the best for me. And I dedicate my situation to you. God, be with them as they part from this place. May they come to know you more deeply each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. We love you. Have a great weekend.